upon Christ's death for us. And realize that this is not a theological statement, but reality. That it is something that has occurred in history, in space and in time. It is not an idea in men's minds. It is not something that merely gives me psychological escape. But this is reality above all other realities. Above the reality of my own existence and the world which surrounds me is the existence of God and the flaming holiness of his character that cannot accept sin. And therefore, that there is no solution for man in rebellion, in deep treason as we have just done, against the creator of the universe, except the love of God which supplies Christ's death upon the cross. So we should be filled not with merely theological speculation, but wonder at the understanding that Christ died in my stead in place, to use the old expression. It is necessary in such a thought, if one is to pursue it properly, to always speak in the first person, to say they, or even we, carries us away from the centrality of what God would have us say. So it is very proper that in the hymn we have just sung, it should be in the first place in person singular. And speaking of Christ dying upon the cross, though it is awkward for a preacher to so speak, and we tend, for ease sake, to shift to the plural and say we, Yet in reality, there is no way to speak solidly and truly except in the first person singular to say, I. Christ died. He took away the guilt of the man who accepts Christ as his Savior. He died in substitution. His blood washed us clean. Now these things are the passive obedience of Christ, to use a theological term which should not be despised. It is a very fine term, especially in the contrast we shall see this morning. The passive obedience of Christ are those total things which he suffered in his humiliation, and specifically and centrally his death upon the cross to take the punishment which each of us so richly deserves. This is the passive obedience of Christ. Obedience, passive obedience. But as we turn to Scripture, we find that what Christ has wrought for us has, does not end with the passive obedience of himself and his death for us. And so in the book of Romans, in the first chapter, in verses 6 and 7, we read where Paul was writing to the church in the great metropolis of Rome, among whom ye also the called of Jesus Christ, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, all the Christians in Rome, called saints, 
If you have a King James translation, you notice the words to be are in italics, which means they were just added to make it read more smoothly. But in making it more, read more smoothly, it loses exactly what Paul wanted to say. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, that is the Christians in Rome, call all saints. The Christians who were in Rome, not one or two, but all the Christians in Rome, were called by the Apostle under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and therefore speaking from God, he called each Christian, every individual Christian, saints. Nor is this shut up only to this one reference. We find it is Paul's common way of speaking to the Christians. If there was a church that was having problems, it was the church of Corinth. And yet in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, writing to the Christians in Corinth, we see him saying, Unto the church of God, which is a Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. And more than that, the universal, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, Everyone in any place who called upon the name of Jesus Christ was designated by God through Paul with the word saint. Saint. In Ephesians, we find the same emphasis. Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. He called them saints. In the 18th verse, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And just to mention, it's also used in Colossians. Now then, what is a saint? Because if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, God says that's what we are, so it would be well to know what a saint is, if that's what we are. Now a saint, certainly is not the Roman Catholic concept of saints. And because of the Roman Catholic concept of saints, we are apt to have a poor connotation of this word in our mind rather automatically. A saint is not a person who has achieved a certain goodness which places him above the common run of other Christians. That is not the meaning of the word saint. The Roman Catholic concept of saint is a man whose positive goodness in this life is of such a high nature that the sufferings he has already suffered in this life enables him to go immediately to heaven without suffering in purgatory. Nothing could be, of course, further from the scriptural teaching. And yet there is one element of this which is right. And that is the word saint cannot merely rest 
upon the concept of having been washed clean. The word saint must have a positive connotation, and it does have a positive connotation. Now we can say, and we do say very forcibly, the Roman Catholic concept is wrong. But nevertheless, as Christians opening the Word of God and being called saints, we must understand that there is a positive element in this concept. It is not just that we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. That would bring us to a neutral position, as it were, but a neutral position is different than that which would enable us to call each other by this word saint, as Paul called the Christian of his day. Now what we find as we take these passages and examine them is that it is saying in God's sight we are at the present time saints, not that we will become saints, but if we have accepted Christ as our Savior at the present time, we are saints in God's sight. This is pretty overwhelming. It's pretty hard to know anybody very well and think of them as a saint. But that's with our imperfect God. What would it be to God? How could God look upon us, knowing not only those outward discrepancies, but all the things which we are to the very core of our heart in our mind and deep into our subconscious, how could he look upon us and designate us with the word saint? It seems overwhelming. But here we come to that which we would, in theology, proper biblical theology, has been put in distinction to the word the path of obedience of Christ. And it seems to me all too often we do not dwell on this side of it. The path of obedience of Christ, remember, is what he suffered, the price he paid, the substitution he bore to take the punishment of our sins. The act of obedience, however, is something, I won't say more, how could it be more than Christ's death for us? and yet nevertheless something in addition. And that is, Christ not only died for me, he lived for me. Christ not only died for me, he lived for me. And remembering I'm using the first person singular, as I've said, because really there's no other proper way to so deal with such a subject. The act of obedience of Christ is the biblical emphasis that Christ not only died for me, but he lived for me. He not only died for me, but his keeping of the law is imputed to me. His death is imputed to me. But not just his death is imputed to me. His living and keeping the law is imputed to me. In a Philippians, 3, 9, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, that is, my own good acts, and he can conceive a very good act in his life if he looks with care, 
but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which are, is of God by faith. Here is a positive righteousness which is specifically said not to rest upon my own good work. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This righteousness in God's sight, which is not based on my own good work, is said to be a part of Christ's work for me if I am a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It says here, Christ himself is our righteousness. And in Romans 10, 3 and 4, Romans 10, 3 and 4, for being ignorant, speaking of what was wrong with the Jews in the Old Testament, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, ha uh, have not, or did not, submit themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. This includes the Old Testament saints looking forward to the death of Christ as well as the New Testament saints. These people tried to establish their own positive righteousness and, of course, fell very badly. In fact, it proved to be a revolt against God again. But there is a righteousness of God, a positive righteousness, which is to the Christian, to everyone who believes. It is more then than a removed guilt. It is a positive righteousness. A positive righteousness which has been supplied. A positive righteousness which is not based upon just those poor few motions of goodness that the Christian has in his life. And I said, Christian. Christ paid the penalty for us. But Christ not only washes us clean, but he supplies the righteousness under perfection in which I may be clothed. He supplies a righteousness a perfect righteousness in which, in the present tense, I may be clothed. Now as we grow, go on in the Christian life, if we let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts, we increasingly move away from pride. It doesn't say we do, but we should. For as the Christian allows the Holy Spirit to speak to his heart, and with a finger more acute than any psychologist, reaching down into my individual life and into my, even into that which he brings up out of my 
subconscious life. I must increasingly be aware as a Christian how much I lack in my life. I must be increasingly aware how much my life is marked by elements of sin. Now, Christians, Christians sometimes do become proud. They set up a few minor standards. They live up to the few minor standards and say, look at us. But when we do this, this is just one more mark of the fact that we are indeed marked deeply with the elements of sin. Because the more in reality we study the Word of God, not just to teach others, but to let it speak to our own hearts, and the more we allow the Holy Spirit to dig down into our own lives, we must acknowledge we are stained, we are marked as Christians with a multitude of elements of sin. How much I lack as a Christian in my own life. But in contrast, Christ met every situation perfectly. Every situation. As we see him coming from his baptism, led into the wilderness, we understand that it would seem that at his baptism, he took a public position. He began his representation for his people. The beginning of his representation certainly did not start on the cross. He was the representative of his people prior to the cross. Someone might have to say he always was the representative of his people. But whether he was always the representative of his people from the time he was a little boy or not, one thing is sure and overwhelmingly sure, and that is from the time of his baptism on, he was the representative of his people. He did not become the representative of his people on the day of his death at the beginning of Passion Week or when he entered the garden. He was already the representative of his people. Now, in this Luke passage which we read, we read of his, we read of his temptation. And it was a very, indeed, a very strenuous temptation. And there was a tremendous victory there. And the Bible, of course, is a supernatural book and teaches us that we live in a supernatural universe. And so it makes no apologies for the fact that he was confronted with a personality called Satan. And the temptation was real, and the temptation was sharp, and the temptation was hard. But there was a victory, a total victory, and Christ did not, succeed, did not succumb. It would seem that having become the public represent representative of his people, at the baptism, immediately Satan made his onslaught with a great and tremendous and formal temptation. The temptation, the more we understand that it was struck, and it struck very, the very heart of that which would strike this one standing before him. But there was a total victory. Now then, understanding that at least at his baptism he became the representative of of whom? 
Well, the same one who has spoken, if we have spoken individually properly, the same one who is the sinner for whom Christ died, also at that time of temptation, he was my representative. He was my representative. And in God's sight, that victory at the time of his temptation is imputed to everyone who takes Christ as Savior. If you have accepted him as your representative, that victory, with all its force, in that 40 days, by Satan, directly, is imputed to you. But as we turn to the book of the book of Luke, and we read in Luke 4 about that temptation, there is a little phrase that sends us on. It's in the 13th verse to the 4th chapter of Luke. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Let's not make a mistake. The temptation wasn't over. It had just begun. It was a formal, a formal joining of the battle of the enemy of men face to face with a Messiah, the representative of his people. But this does not mean that the battle was over. It had only been joined. And so the devil just departed from him for a season. And in the book of Hebrews, in the fourth chapter and the fifteenth verse, this is carried along and we're told something more. In Hebrews 4, 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. This says something which is not to be minimized. It says that Jesus Christ knew the temptation of every man. That there is absolutely no temptation that any man has ever suffered that Jesus Christ did not at some time in his ministry suffer. He knew it all. He knew it all. He knew it all. Where is the sin that has stumbled me? What is the besetting sin? that I find not just once or twice in my life, but constantly in my life. Don't say you don't have them. We do have them. What is my constant source of failure? Jesus knew that sin and was victorious. What is the sin that sneaks up on us in the middle of the night? and is not my besetting sin, but trips me unexpectedly in the dark or in the light. And we all have this. Whatever it is, Jesus Christ knew that temptation and was victorious in it. And that victory, in the area of my particular sin, is imputed to me if I have accepted Christ 
as my Savior. Think of some of the perfections and the lights and the glory. Jesus, with his perfect zeal for the holiness of God's house and God's name. You won't look up these references, but I'll just mention them. In John 2, 13 through 17, the temple was cleansed. Here is the beginning, the understanding, the zeal of Jesus Christ for the holiness of God. This is the place of the beginning of understanding. The other zeal of Jesus Christ for that flaming holiness which God is. He could not stand. He could not tolerate. His eyes flashed. There was godly wrath when he drove those people out of the temple. There was no lacking in his zeal and in his sensitivity to the holiness of the person and the name of God. And yet at the same time, and let us add quickly, there was no lacking in his compassion for lost men. Matthew 9, 36. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Absolute zeal for the holiness of God. And yet at the same time, a tenderness, a compassion that could bring tears. How often I lack in this bound. How often I lack in my zeal for the holiness of the name of God and God's person. How often I lack in compassion. But how doubly often I lack in the balance between the two. For the balance of one without the other is sin. But Jesus didn't lack in the balance. He hated sin. He hated everything that spoke against the holiness of God or that furthered the rebellion of man against his creator. The compassion was deep. The compassion was simultaneous. The compassion was full and complete. I sin in this balance. But when I accept Christ as my Savior, that holy zeal for His, for God's righteousness, and that unending compassion is imputed to me. It's imputed to me. Or another area. How often I sin in my lack of faithfulness to those who are not Christians. But this was not true of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was perfect in his, in his faithfulness to those who were not Christian and needed the gospel of justification. He speaks to a Nicodemus when he comes in the middle of the night. There's no note of, go away, I'm sleepy. And he speaks to the woman at the well, which is a very difficult sociological situation. Very difficult indeed to talk to the woman at the well. 
But he did both with other faithfulness. But more than this, in those pure, few poor motions which we do do, how often we sin in being too soft or too hard in our approach to the person we're trying to speak to. How often I sin in this area, even when the, I do something. So often my approach is so entirely filled with sin, not mistakes. That's different. I'm not talking about mistakes. I'm talking just about plain sin. Being too hard on some, too soft on others. Because of a fleshly, worldly viewpoint. But not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was perfect at this point. Nicodemus came, the man to whom people naturally would be soft, and Jesus was hard. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, the woman to whom men would naturally be hard, and he was most gentle, most gentle. So it is not only his faithfulness in speaking that is imputed to the Christian, it is his lack of sin in his approach. Our approach to the lost can be filled, reeking with sin, reeking with sin. There are so many other areas, one must just choose them. How often I sin in my care to others, but not Christ. Christ did not sin in his care to others. When he stood before the tomb of Lazarus, he wept. He wept. He had a care not only for Lazarus, but for the weeping ones who were there. And he followed unto perfection the word. And we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We do not. I do not. Take a lifetime of study and calling, if you will, unto this. We never achieve this completely. And I don't mean just our finiteness that makes it impossible for us to bear everybody's burdens as though we were God. We can't do that. But I mean just our plain hard-heartedness and our own self-centeredness that builds a wall around us so that when we should be weeping with those who are weeping, we are not weeping. And this is sin. This is sin, but not Jesus. Jesus wept fully with those who weep. How often we sin in the material needs of others, in meeting those material needs. But not Jesus, Jesus fed the hungry. How often we are not the good neighbor. We who are... as saints what we have but at the same time we are told that we are to walk as become a saint we are to walk as become a saint And this is exactly the balance that God's Word gives us. 
exactly the word that God's word gives you. We are saints indeed. But we're to walk as become a saint. And this is the emphasis here in this passage. Receive, as he says in Romans, receive her as become a saint. The emphasis of the word is the simple emphasis that we are saints when we are clothed upon with the righteousness which we have in Christ. But we're not to forget that we are saints and we're to walk according to that calling. We're to walk according to that calling. If we are a saint in God's sight now, on the basis of what Christ has done for us, if that is so, then the Word of God insists, walk that way. Walk that way. It's not that you build your robe of righteousness by your good acts, but that already being a saint, in the sight of God, the calling is on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk that way now. It is not a very pretty picture for saints to walk so contrary to those things which Christ has done for us. And to keep the picture in perfect balance, we must remember that though it is true that the righteous robe in which we're clothed is the work of Christ and not our own, <coughs> this doesn't mean for a moment that the way we walk does not affect history. It does. Our walk has a significance in history. Because we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, and in God's sight we are saints now, does not mean that the practice of our walk does not affect the acceptance of other people of Christ as Savior or hinder them. So the Bible is very careful to give the balance. And if we had an evening service on Sunday night, which we don't have, I would feel called upon to preach the other side of this same great thing that God gives us and brings together in these passages. And that is there is a believer's judgment. And in matter, in God's sight, how as saints, we now walk. It matters now how we walk.
And so in Ephesians 5, having spoken of our being saints in the first chapter, we can read, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint. And this is the balance I bring to you. You're a saint. Well, then it doesn't become you to walk in this other fashion. And the eighth verse tells us how it can be done. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. You don't make yourself a child of light by walking in the light. You're to walk in the light because you're a child of light and accepting Christ as, having accepted Christ as Savior. You don't make yourself a saint by your godly acts. You are a saint by having accepted Christ as your Savior and having imputed to you the perfect keeping of the law of Jesus Christ. But it certainly would not be the complete balance without saying what the Holy Spirit says with Saul, but with Paul, but fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint. And I'm just reading this one verse, but as you go down through here, it isn't just sexual sins, there's something like this that he's talking about. It's the whole gamut. If you're a saint and Christ has kept the law for you at your point of weakness, then through the power of the finished work of Jesus Christ, through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk has become a saint. But I would come back to the main message and finish there. And that is to say with gladness that when we appear before God, the Machin was not speaking nothing. He was speaking that which was totally scriptural. When immediately before his death, I said, he said, I am not, I am so thankful. I am so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. There, no, nor, no hope without it. Should not our hearts be thankful that Jesus not only died on the cross for us, but he kept the law for us? Should we not be thankful that when we had revolted against God and were guilty of treason, and even in human government, treason always brings death, then what is treason against our Creator and against the King of the universe? Do we not deserve death? Yea, we deserve death. Should we not be thankful for the passive obedience of Christ, whereby he took my guilt upon the cross, took the punishment, for my breaking of the law, but should I be less thankful that Christ lived for me, for the act of obedience of Christ, that he kept all the law for me, so that I have a robe of righteousness in God's sight. The king looked upon the man with the wealth, the wedding garment, and said, there's no place for you here. Be gone be gone out of darkness and tears one needs a wedding garment but thank God we don't have to make our own 
Jesus in his act of obedience kept the law. And if I have accepted Christ as my Savior, I have a wedding garment. It is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The breathing. But I have a robe of righteousness in God's sight. The king looked upon the man with the wealth of wedding, wedding garment. He said, there's no place for you here. Be gone. Be gone. Out of darkness and tears. One needs a wedding garment. But thank God, we don't have to make our own. Jesus, in his act of obedience, kept the law. And if I have accepted Christ as my Savior, I have a wedding garment. It is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ.